welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's weekly podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Katya Gold, a Russia West policy fellow at the European Leadership Network, ELN, and a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, or CEPA. She is an expert on Eurasia and has a wealth of experience studying Belarus. Well, welcome, Katya. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show again. Now, this is generally a podcast about Russia, uh, but by necessity, uh, that now means it is often also about Ukraine and sometimes also about Belarus. Uh, Today, we'll we'll be talking about Belarus because its authoritarian or autocratic leader since 1994, Alexander Lukashenko, uh, dropped out of sight for a full five days after May 9th, when he attended Russia's World War II ceremony, the Victory Day ceremony in Moscow. Uh, He looked unwell in TV footage from Red Square that day and reportedly was unable to walk a short distance uh, for part of the ceremony with leaders of other former Soviet republics. And he was reportedly taken to the hospital in Minsk, um, at least briefly over, over the weekend. There was a, his, uh, his, uh, car, his cars were seen uh, headed to a hospital and then uh, headed back a few hours later. Uh, yesterday, the state, uh, the Belarusian state, released a video that was clearly aimed to show that he is alive and more or less well. Uh, it showed him speaking at a military installation, and the content of his remarks indicated that the footage was shot in recent days. Uh, and while I haven't seen it, he's apparently appeared again um, on TV today. Um, and uh, his his voice is quite hoarse, um, you know. But but uh, so two days in a row he's been shown on TV. Um, I don't believe he's appeared sort of in public itself. Now there's been plenty of speculation about what may be wrong or may have been wrong with Lukashenko, who is 68 years old. Uh, he's disappeared from the public eye a few times in the past, but this was a pretty quite a prolonged absence. Uh, And while the footage shown yesterday and today alters the picture, I I think it's worth discussing what might happen if Lukashenko were to die or become unfit to rule or be be declared unfit to rule, which could be a different thing. Uh, It's worth discussing, I think, because in part because he's been in power for 29 years um, almost. And also because I think it's objectively true that Russia has been seeking, uh, since Vladimir Putin came to power in 2000, if not even before that, uh, seeking to gain more influence over Belarus uh, and potentially to absorb it into Russia, uh, as it is trying to do with parts or all of Ukraine and has uh, claimed groundlessly that it has done with parts of Ukraine. Now, yesterday, uh, Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, the opposition leader in Belarus who was forced into exile after the 2020 election in which Lukashenko claimed victory despite widespread evidence of fraud, uh, said that uh, as the rumors were flying about his health, quote, we must all be well prepared for every scenario. 
to turn Belarus on the path to democracy and to prevent Russia from interfering. We need the international community to be proactive and fast. So um, Tsikhanovsko was clearly focusing uh, pretty heavily on on the the concern about uh, Russian intervention uh, and attempts to gain influence, especially at at a sensitive or unstable time in Belarus. Katya, I'd be interested in hearing your views about what might happen um, you know, if, if Lukashenko were to go or to be unfit to rule. Uh, in terms of different factions or individuals uh, jockeying for position and also uh, on what Moscow might do, to what extent the Kremlin might get involved or perhaps already be involved. Yes, thank you, Steve. Um, these are very good questions. And um, indeed, even though Lukashenko has appeared on television, um, indeed, he did not look well. And um, his health has particularly um, deteriorated over the past two years. He's certainly not that um, sportsman and hockey player as we um, had known him for um, some 20 years. Um, So whatever it is, even though he is now back doing his work, um, there is quite good chance that something might happen again, as particularly, as I said, over the past two years since, uh, um, as I remember, during the August 2020 presidential election campaign, um, when he made one of his campaign speeches, he looked really bad. And since then, he has not looked uh, much better. So I think it's very important to discuss these issues as uh, um, he might, there might be again a moment when um, he will disappear or will be unwell. So, um, what could happen? Well, um, under the Belarusian constitution, which was uh, amended um, last February, if the president dies um, natural death, then the powers of the president go to the head of the um, chairman of the higher chamber of the Belarusian parliament. And um, that was changed, as I said, before the powers would have gone to the prime minister. And I think that was done deliberately because the person who currently occupies the position of this uh, chairman of the um, upper house of the Belarusian parliament is um, a a woman uh, called Natalia Kachanova. And she's uh, probably the closest um, public official to Lukashenko. She has been his confidant for um, at least the last six, seven years. She um, used to head uh, his presidential administration. She was his chief of staff, particularly responsible for um, staffing. Um, state bodies, and she has a lot of informal power. She's known as someone who has links to all public officials. Um, She's well received within the Lukashenko family. And more recently, since she's become uh, um, uh, the head of the upper house of the parliament, and since the actually the start of the war, she has been quite often in Russia. She met with her counterpart, Valentina Matvienka. Recently, she was received by Foreign Minister Lavrov. And it seemed like as if Russia was probing her, as if the Kremlin was trying to see what 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 is she like. And I think that's not um, very surprising. I think the Kremlin would see her as someone who could be a good conduit for their power, someone through whom, uh, through whom they could um, exert some influence over Belarus. 
again, coming back over the, uh, back to the amended constitution, if the president dies, the head of the upper house becomes, um, uh, assumes the duties of the president, and then within the next 30, 70 days, new elections uh, must be called, new presidential election must be called. But nothing is specified in either in the constitution or in other uh, Belarusian laws, um, how these elections will be conducted, um, uh, who will be, um, how the commissions will be set up, all that is vague and probably left deliberately very vague. So it leaves a lot of space for interpretation and for different individuals and factions to step in. And as I mentioned, Natalia Kachanova has a lot of informal power, but second person who comes to mind who has a lot of formal power is actually the current prime minister. Well, a lot, obviously, all very um, relative in a very personalistic regime like the one of Alexander Lukashenko. But Roman Halochenka, he's someone who is, has real official powers, much more than um, the head of the upper house of parliament. Um, he also has very good links to Moscow, and he probably would be some who might be interested in taking more power should the uh, situation comes to Lukashenko dying. I would like to mention two more people. Um, one person is the head of the, um, the state secretary of the uh, um, Security Council, someone called Alexander Volfovich. And he is Russian. He is Russian military. Um, he um, graduated from a Moscow command school. Um, he has been in Belarus um, maybe only for the past 20 years. He's been uh, um, seen many times since the start of the war in Ukraine. And he's someone who seems to have assumed more powers than normally the um, state secretary of the Security Council would have. Again, very convenient person to push um, the Kremlin's interest into Belarus. And the last person I would like to mention here is uh, um, Lukashenko's eldest son, Viktor Lukashenko. And although um, for the past two years, Lukashenko has been, uh, Viktor Lukashenko has been just the head of the National Olympic Committee, up until that time, for tw some 20 years, Viktor Lukashenko was president's um, security advisor. So Viktor Lukashenko is someone who still has the power over Belarusian Siloviki, someone who knows very well security services, and someone who also has some state experience. So therefore, I would think that he's, he's, uh, um, he will also come into play if and where that Belarus um, would somehow lose Lukashenko. There is um, another case if the president becomes incapacitated, that he's still alive, but then the Belarusian constitution allows um, uh, the parliament, both chambers of the Belarusian parliament, if they manage to have two-third majorities, they can remove the president from the office. I don't see this scenario in Belarus again, because in Belarus, it's mainly, well, it is Lukashenko who holds all the strings of power. And it's hard to imagine somewhere, someone like Bastrykin or Patrushev who has some similar influence over public officials. So I don't think that anyone would dare, would take this responsibility to actually convene this session of parliament and declare Lukashenko incapacitated. And the last thing I would like to mention here is, of course, the Belarusian opposition. 
And um, uh, um, obviously, they are also a player um, led by Svetlana Sikhanovskaya. Um, but I don't see them as having, um, well, much influence in Belarus. Obviously, with a very high level of repression, um, society has been um, very quiet in Belarus. We see literally every week we have about a dozen of arrests across the country. So uh, it has been, uh, um, it has not stopped. Um, so society is very quiet. Um, it somewhat um, lost its support to, um, in uh, support to Tikhanovska because they don't see her as um, having achieved much over um, um, two and a half years that she has been the leader of the opposition. But more importantly, she does not really have much um, many links to the regime inside the country. So although they would definitely think how they could take over power if it were to come to it, I don't think they, the Belarusian opposition would be organized or would have the logistical capacity, would have the organizational capacity to become a meaningful player. And I think, Steve, the words which you mentioned by Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, um, that she said that it would be, that she would rely basically on the international community to prevent Russian interference and to help Belarus to move to democracy is also very telling. I think the Belarusian opposition its plan is really to rely on the international community, on the West, to somehow manage um, this transition and to help Belarusian opposition um, come to power, which is, again, quite unrealistic. So I would probably stop here. All right. Thanks very much. That's uh, extremely uh, you know, useful rundown, great rundown on some of the, or the, the main figures um, involved. Uh, and also, yeah, that, that's a big kind of question mark. Um, you know, I guess what would the West do and what would it have the kind of unity and have the, uh, the attention to do? It, you know, there's a lot going on uh, elsewhere as well. So that's, that's a question. But I just wanted to focus on a couple things you said and, and maybe ask a follow-up question. But um, uh, one thing you mentioned, I'll just give a little plug to RFERL. Uh, you, you mentioned sort of the the intense, uh, you know, there's been a huge crackdown on the opposition and, and just regular Belarusians um, since those elections in 2020. Um, and our Belarus service had a story um, recently that we're now ver making a version of in English about how, and, and you mentioned many people are, are being jailed, um, but this story is about how once people get out of jail, if, if there's a political element to their, their trials and prosecutions, uh, it's not the end of the repression. They are, you know, followed, they're monitored, uh, they, they can't get jobs, things like that. So, so I think that plays into the way that, um, you know, in the event of Lukashenko's kind of dis, uh, disappearing from the scene, you know, the, the, the limited power that, that the people will probably have. But I, I just, I guess I wanted to ask a question, you know, you mentioned um, the main figures who, you know, who could who could uh, seek to and, and play a big role um, in, in a kind of a transition. I guess one question would be, are any of them sort of more seen as more loyal to Moscow or potentially more vulnerable to Moscow um, th than the other ones? 
Um, yes, yeah. Um, thank you. That's a good question. I would certainly, as I said, um, Alexander Wolfovich, the um, um, Secretary of the Security Council, is someone whom I, I would see very loyal and very malleable, potentially malleable by Moscow. I think his loyalties um, lie, well, obviously currently with Lukashenko because he's his boss, but I think it would be very easy to um, um, get uh, Russia's influence through him. Likewise, I see Natalia Kachanova, the um, chairman of the um, upper house of Belarusian parliament as very pro-Russian as well. She is, um, as a woman, we have, I mean, this is an awful uh, remark to, to make, but that's how things are in Belarus. We have really seen her um, basically advocating for every single word that Lukashenko, every single policy or step that he has been um, taken, particularly since the um, August 2020 elections. She has been extremely loyal to him. She has been also very, uh, um, she has, um, you know, this kind of soft, gentle note to her that maybe some men um, are missing. And she has really gone out into the public, um, tried to talk to various layers too, of society, to students, to workers, uh, um, all what she was said, uh, all what she was, uh, what she said was very much kind of within the Soviet dogmas and, you know, Soviet cliches. She was not impressive at all. But nonetheless, she is someone who I think can be very well um, also um, changed, altered to um, particular needs, uh, be it Russia's needs or maybe some, you know, Soloviki within um uh, within the belarusian um, elites um victor lukashenko funny enough i would see him as probably someone who would be more resistant to russia just because he's a younger person well relatively younger in his late 40s he's someone who grew up during the independent belarus and he's someone who still um still has some of his father's values now that it should be um independent country of course the, the the power of lukashenko within this country is what matters most to um alexander lukashenko and to his son but at the same time victor lukashenko is still of a newer generation of belarusian officials who would not like to see belarus uh, being absorbed by russia even more i would argue than his father does Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Um, and, and I could see, I mean, just sort of subjectively, I could see how, I mean, his father has sort of spent his life, his career playing off Russia against the West. I mean, less so in the last, since those elections and since the Russian war in Ukraine, you know, he's obviously not uh, winning any accolades in the West, but, you know, he's, um, for what it's worth, he has uh, managed to keep Belarusia from being swallowed up by by Russia until now, and I I assume maybe his son would would sort of take something from that. Um, just going to go to the second question shortly. I just wanted to make a quick point or point out that you you know you mentioned Lukashenko's health or physical condition seems to have um, you know been uh, getting worse or you know certainly not what it was. Um, Two years ago and three years ago during, during the during or before the August 2020 election, uh, you know, one thing Putin and Lukashenko, that they've had many meetings um, 
and they've often played hockey together. Uh, this is a sport that I think Lukashenko grew up playing, and Putin, um, who's two years older, uh, possibly strangely for someone who grew up in St. Petersburg, didn't know how to skate until he learned when he was quite maybe 40 years old, I think. Um, and I've always thought that maybe uh, Putin was kind of unhappy that Lukashenko was a better hockey player than him. Um, of course, Putin does score many goals when they have these organized games. But uh, it's kind of aside the point. But, but I guess I haven't really seen Lukashenko on the ice uh, you know, recently. Uh, and there was COVID and everything, so uh, which, which he attempted to essentially deny was happening in his country. Uh, but so that's just sort of a little bit of the, the personal kind of power politics between Putin and Lukashenko. Uh, but um, so thanks very much. My, my second question is a bit broader. It plays into some of the same issues, though. Um, it's more about Belarus's role in Russia's war against Ukraine and also um, Russia's apparent efforts to gain more control over Belarus. Um, you know, regardless of Lukashenko's uh, condition. Basically, my question is whether anything has changed in this regard. The last time you were on this podcast was in December, and you explained why Belarus has supported the Russian invasion, but has not sent troops into Ukraine. Uh, one main reason being that the Belarusian people, and probably the military brass as well, do not want this. Is this situation changing at all? And and have there been developments in Russia's efforts to bring Belarus uh, even closer into its orbit? Yes, there, there has been an interesting dynamic um, with regard to these two questions. Well, firstly, if we look at the war, I would say that some things have changed, but uh, others have remained. So the latter point is um, public support or rather disapproval of, uh, of this war. Um, there was, again, a poll that was conducted in April, and we see exactly the same very high figures that we have seen since the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That 97% um, of Belarusians say that they do not want to see Belarusian troops on the Ukrainian soil. Furthermore, the same percentage, um, about 45 50 percent of people say that they do not support uh, Russia's war um, and only one third says that they approve of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Again, these figures have not changed since uh, um, 2022 and that shows perhaps or gives a clue why Lukashenko has been trying somewhat to distance himself more and more from the war. And I will explain what I mean by that. Well, first of all, uh, when I was there in the, on your podcast in December, I talked about how um, Belarus supported, uh, provided medical care to the Belarus, uh, to Russian soldiers, how Belarus also provided various logistical supply lines, how Belarus gave various types of ammunition, etc. Um, and how many actually rockets were launched uh, from Belarus. Um, I think it was about 800, 818 as of September. Well, these things have more or less stopped. Well, first of all, there have been no missiles uh, fired from Belarus since September. Um, obviously, as 
as the front lines have shifted, then uh, Belarusian healthcare hasn't been so um, useful to Russia. So I don't think we see now many, if any at all, Russian soldiers being treated in Belarusian hospitals. I think Lukashenko has probably given all of those Soviet tanks and um, armored vehicles um, and ammunition shells what Belarus has had by now. So I think the this traffic has also largely ceased. Um, at the same time, even at the level of rhetoric, we I think we see um, an interesting difference what Lukashenko has been saying, because prior, probably up to December last year, he had been uh, always saying that the West and Ukraine are trying to attack us and we have to be prepared, etc. Well, about a month ago, everyone noticed how he completely changed this rhetoric. And when being in the south of Belarus, in the area bordering Ukraine, he actually said that, no, neither Ukraine nor uh, the West are going to attack us. Just relax, you know, don't get agitated. And I think, I mean, even though you can, of course, argue that Lukashenko can say various things, they don't mean that, you know, he follows through with action. But I think he's really, he's, hit him home that at least on the battlefield Russia is losing and he does not want to be seen associated with Russia. So we see much more active support. By the way, also, of course, the training of Russian soldiers that Belarus did very actively um, in the autumn and in the, in the winter, that has also finished. Well, maybe if there is a new mobilization campaign in Russia, then Belarus would again be active. But so far, Belarus has militarily distanced it has been trying to distance itself from Russia. And um, also, um, as I said, the rhetoric, the rhetoric has changed as Lukashenko is really now worried that he um, does not want to be associated with Putin. He does not want to be to have further sanctions um, by the West. And he still sees that the war is very unpopular uh, with um, the Belarusian public and with the Belarusian elites, political, um, economic, um, or the security elites. Obviously, second point to make here is Lukashenko is very worried, I think, about tactical nukes uh, being potentially deployed to Belarus. And this is something that uh, Putin said that would happen and uh, even speculated, even said that there is a special nuclear facility which is being built for that in Belarus. Again, we have not received any confirmation or any evidence of that. And I think it's quite easy now to detect that through various satellite images. We have not seen any storage facility being built. And I think also, I mean, um, there was an interesting dynamic around that announcement um, by Putin that Lukashenko again kept very silent for a week on the topic, even before he had always been saying that he would like to have nukes. But I think one thing is to use this idea of having nukes as a deterral, theoretical deterral, and completely different when these nukes might be moved to your territory, to your country, and might be even used in a, you know, increasing 
increasingly unpredictable outcomes. I think Lukashenko is quite worried about that. He does not want these nukes to be in Belarus because obviously that also means more military, um, more presence by the Russian military, which, by the way, has also decreased. I think the latest estimate is that we have about 2,500 Russian troops in Belarus and uh, 2,500. And this is, you know, down from about 10, 12,000 that we saw in um, November last year. So all of that makes um, Lukashenko quite worried. And he really, I think, would like to distance further and um, from, from Russia and from being further involved um, in the war. As far as the Russian um, uh, absorption of Belarus or Russia trying to get Belarus closer integrated into um, uh, itself is concerned, I think things are definitely moving although slowly, again, is kind of, you know, this typical Putin's manner, a way of squeezing, you know, your enemy, doing it gradually. A, a lot of the things are happening um, outside of the public eye. But for example, um, we know that, you know, in terms of economic integration, at least, um, in um, I will rem remind you that in November 2021, Belarus and Russia signed this 28 so-called union programs of um, you know, which sort of coordinated integration in various economic fields. And although there hasn't been much discussion about it in the public, there have been certain, you know, clues dropped, uh, certain statements made by Deputy Prime Minister of Belarus and the Economy Minister. So we see that these documents are being further um, furnished with details. And I think things are happening. Well, for example, the biggest thing we know is about the uh, um, so-called harmonization of uh, administering um, the ta taxes, both in Belarus and Russia. So Belarus kind of gave, uh, um, granted um, IT access and all other admin access to Russia um, to monitor a Belarusian taxation system and to to bring it in line with the Russian one. And there have been other things which have not been discussed. So I think Russia is still having, the Kremlin is having this very slow, gradual approach of um, trying to um, administer, incorporate Belarusian economy as much as possible whilst kind of leaving the um, political integration outside of it. And um, Russia does not need, I mean, to press on with any sort of formal political integration because Lukashenko is doing, I think, most of what Putin um, requested of, from him again. I mean, we can talk about the sort of uh, um, semi-recognition of, you know, the so-called Donetsk and Lukansk regions and um, the recent visit of Pushilin to Belarus. If, for example, a year ago, all that went, you know, very much unreported by the Belarusian media and Lukashenko did not meet with the representatives of this uh, breakaway um, this, sorry, of this um, uh, Russian occupied territories. Then this time it was a big meeting that um, Lukashenko, um, you know, made um, uh, Pushilin very welcome, etc. So things like this are definitely definitely happening. And that's probably the Russia's approach that it can gradually um, get, you know, um, get Belarus more absorbed through other channels rather than doing it uh, in an um, open political way. Uh, thanks very much, Katya. That's uh, 
you know, incredible detail and, and, and but also kind of comprehensive uh, description of what's happening on several several fronts, so to speak. Um, uh, that's quite striking. I mean, I've been sort of unaware of, of what's been going on lately uh, in all those directions, but um, it sounds like you're describing kind of a kind of a stealth Russian effort to, you know, to to uh, get the closer integration done mostly through the economy while you still have Lukashenko, uh, Lukashenko kind of, um, well, you're, you're painting a picture, I think, of Lukashenko, who from the beginning, I, I mean, I always like to say that I think throughout the 90s and 2000s, the key to his popularity to to a large degree, especially during the Chechen wars in Russia, was that simply that he was not sending Belarusians to fight. Um, and he was popular for that, including in Russia. Um, so that's the background of his, you know, uh, res resistance or, uh, you know, lack of desire to, to actually join in the war. But now you're saying, or at least if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying he may be increasingly concerned about essentially uh, being tying himself to the losing side of the losing side of the war. Yes, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, he's worried about that. He's worried about the uh, new sanctions as well. He's worried how the public views him and the war. And he does not want to lose this remaining 30% of support, which has not increased since over the past five years. I would probably just add a bit, uh, one more thing about the economy that, of course, with the Western sanctions, uh, Belarus has been automatically pushed more into the Russian economic orbit, if you wish. Um, again, there has been uh, um, some research done by the economists, which suggests that about 70% of the uh, trades that Belarus uh, used to have with the EU has now been overtaken by Russia. So these goods and products, they all go to Russia. We don't know whether then they are sold further on to the EU because the statistics is classified. But at least... Uh, um, Belarus has been able to persuade um, Russian um, suppliers that, you know, it's a good market. We see also, um, you know, through the military industrial complex, we have seen um, far more cooperation than in the past. Russia has given Belarus a 1.5 billion loan uh, for uh, 14 various projects in the military industrial complex and that includes you know the heavy machinery like chassis but also includes some electronics of course belarus is not um a country that you know would be um a potential uh, um you know alternative to western technology but nonetheless it can provide something and russia is quite short of any um you know military weapons or ammunitions and that would be again quite helpful to belarus Belarus, and that would also mean further integration of Belarusian, various Belarusian sectors into the Russian economy. And even my last point, even at the society level, 
um, Belarus as Russia remain uh, um, currently, you know, under the Western um, air sanctions. Um, there is no air um, traffic between Belarus and Europe, for example, and the same, um, by the way, applies to the train connections as well. And we see now that increasingly many people in Belarus who would normally go on holiday to somewhere in Europe, um, that was very normal to go to Lithuania, to Lithuania or through Poland, goes further to Spain, um, to Italy, etc. And now we seem to get more and more statistics and, you know, anecdotal evidence of people actually, you know, going to Russia, Sochi. And that's another, you know, level of integration that, you know, seems to be happening since um, since the start of the war in particular, but also, of course, you know, even a bit earlier since the um, stolen 2020 election, presidential election in Belarus. All right. Thanks very much, Katya. That, uh, that's a great, uh, a great thing to mention, the, the way, I guess, Belarus and Belarusians themselves are being kind of pushed toward Russia, um, you know, by by the what involvement there was in the war, and, and also the the what their government's done uh, with the with the um, with the elections uh, and the crackdown after those August twenty twenty elections. Okay, um, so I think that's a that's a very important element. Um, all right. Well, we're getting short on time, but um, I'd like to take a few questions if uh, if there are any. Again, if you'd like to ask a question, you can raise your hand by hitting the button to request to speak. You can send a DM or post the question as a reply in this Twitter space. We'll see if any are coming in. Um, Comments, uh, Katya. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks very much, Steve, for having me. Once again, I've been speaking to Katya Grod, a Russia West Policy Fellow at the European Leadership Network, and a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other podcast platforms. I'll be back uh, next week for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, and please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia. It comes out almost every Friday. Thanks for listening.